Good morning, good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. It is the 8th of September 2013, and we have as a co-host, bosom buddy, uh, the inimitable Jeffrey Tucker. We are going to call this perhaps the uh, uh, Jeff and Steph show or the Steph Tucker show, which is almost exactly like the Chris Tucker show, just a tad uh, paler, probably, and with a few more 14th century madrigals than you'd expect in this show. Right. So uh, thanks so much, Jeff, for taking the time this morning. Jeff is the uh, uh, head honcho, uh, chief Punjabi merchant at uh, uh, laissez-faire books at lfb.org. If you'd like to sign up uh, at uh, lfb.org forward slash Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N, they have the most amazing uh, book club where you get uh, free audiobooks and articles uh, just for a few bucks a month. Highly recommend it. So uh, thanks, Jeff, for taking the time this morning. Sure, it's really fantastic to be here. I like this. I like this whole Sunday morning thing. I just, I just got through conducting a big choir. We sang a bunch of medieval music, late Renaissance music, and I sort of hustled away. I saw Robert Murphy out there listening. That was interesting. So I'm plunging in here after that sort of heady experience, and it's a beautiful, beautiful day. Well, I wish I could believe you, Jeff, but if you tell me that um, that Bob Murphy was around uh, public singing and didn't join in, uh, I'm afraid that I must call your bluff on that one because I don't think I've ever seen that karaoke whore near a microphone or any kind of public singing without putting his lungs to good use. I, you know, it's interesting because I had to leave before speaking to him, but I'm looking forward to talking to him afterwards and trying to make sense of this myself. Fantastic. Well, um, so you, uh, we chatted yesterday about the show and you had talked about, um, uh, how, uh, how enjoyable it was to interact with uh, Canadians customs officials and how all our theories about inefficiency and coldness on the part of government officials turned out to have been incorrect, and you were going to blow uh, all voluntarist theories out of the water. I, I may remember, I was fairly drunk during the conversation, but I think that was the gist of it. It was, it was a remarkable experience, uh, Stefan, because I had ex- yeah, I come to expect this from the TSA, but the Canadian border, you know, I, I, I've always thought it was somehow a little more humanitarian and that sort of thing. But, you know, you do the wrong thing, and, you know, you set off the wrong... You sent off the wrong cues in some way, and you know suddenly all over. It was a remarkable experience for me because I had gone up to the customs and just explained my my travel plan, which was a little convoluted. You know, I had gone from from San Diego and driven to Los Angeles, and then flown out of Los Angeles to Seattle, and so on. It's a, a little bit, and I misstated something the first time, and I backtracked. I said, okay, look, actually, I went to San Diego first, and that was just that one little. I think that verbal slip on my part that got me... Well, also, if you accidentally some, throw the word Islamabad in, I think that they also right. get a little excited, but yeah, I'm sure right. that didn't. <laughs> so so that was the kind of... Um, I think that may have been what, what did it. Later, the official told me that what, what set everything off was my claim to be coming into Canada as a, as a, as a tourist or as a visitor for just personal reasons, and yet, you know, I sort of seem to be dressed dressed in a sort of business way. And I had to demonstrate that actually I always dress this way by pulling out this gigantic wad of, of bow ties from my, from my suitcase. You know, but, but now, listen, what was interesting to me is that I, I thought I was on my way towards freedom, just turning in my custom form. And the guy very calmly said, I'm, just follow that letter B. Okay, so I said, well, okay, I'll follow the letter B. A long hallway. Suddenly I find myself embroiled in this, well, sitting in these chairs, you know, of a, of a kind of a government bureaucracy and waiting, and the people in front of me seem to have cobwebs on them. I said, I'm sorry, can I ask you how long you've been here? They said, oh, about 45 minutes. I thought, oh, no. 
Now, this is interesting because I sat there. Uh, just nobody's guarding me. Nobody's, you know, quote, forcing me to be there. Of course, if I had reversed my course and walked backwards out of the line and tried to go, I'm sure they would have arrested me in a second, right? But there wasn't anybody to, to say, hey, are you detaining me? Am I free to go? Like, like you see on these, these videos. There wasn't anybody to speak to at all. You know, you're just kind of stuck there with no information. And I sat there for a full hour until finally they, they called me forward. They wanted to know the number of the people I was visiting in Canada. And I said, gee, I just don't quite remember. I opened my, I pulled my cell phone out of my pocket. I unlocked it. I looked at the number. She said, oh, can I see the number, please? And I, and I handed her the phone. Okay, I'm an idiot, right? She takes the phone and walks away with it and was gone 30 minutes. And um, during which time, you can imagine, right? I, my heart was beating, my hands were sweaty. I stood there, again, unguarded, but trapped, uh, while she had my unlocked cell phone doing I don't know what in another room for 30 minutes. And eventually came back, gave it all back to me and said, you know, had a small talk with me and said, you're free to go. And I, I told her, I said, you know, this was a, a kind of a scary experience for me. Um, but the thing that alarmed me more than anything else was that you stole my soul, cell phone and that you were gone for 30 minutes and it was unlocked. I mean, that's like my whole life was in your hands and in your hands for 30 minutes. She said, oh, we just do that as a precautionary measure for you so that you won't make phone calls and we won't distrust you. And I said, well, as much as I appreciate that, I did find it um, to be a, com a complete invasion, you know. So that that was that's my story. Okay. Yeah, the ironic thing, of course, oh. is that they are uh, they are trying to make you less anxious in a situation of anxiety that they have created for you, which is sort of like locking someone in the basement and then expecting him to thank you when you give him some food and water because you're concerned he might be hungry. Um, that that to me is tragic. Well, you know, there's a number of things, Stefan, that I did, I did wrong in retrospect. I realized this. We all have to kind of train to encounter these situations. It's regrettable, right? But given that we're always, there's always the risk that we're going to be captured, really at any time, all of us, that we need to kind of practice this a little bit more. And I talked to some people. They said, well, you know, when you, first of all, don't unlock your cell phone in front of a government official. Just don't do it. You know, leave it buried in your bag somewhere. If you can't remember the number, just say, I'm sorry, I don't have the number. You know, like that. Um, but somebody I spoke to afterwards had, I thought was very good advice. I said, anytime you're in that sort of interrogation situation, whether it's the TSA or the Canadian uh, uh, passport or customs officials or whatever, you need to treat it like a deposition. And in a deposition, there's a kind of a practiced technique for doing this. You have to uh, learn to say only what's necessary, but say it in a way that sounds forthcoming. So, um, and you should never be afraid to stop the series of questioning, and you should never answer anything that leads to another question. So, for example, when they say, uh, well, who, who are you visiting? You just say, um, uh, you know, Joe and Jane. And they said, well, are they, are they citizens? You can just say, you know, I, I don't really know. Actually, I've never asked them. Well, 
Oh, what is their profession? Well, I don't know. That's just something that's their business, not really mine, and so on. You know, so you need to kind of be forthcoming but not give information. Um, it's a kind of a practice technique, I think. Um, so I wasn't very well practiced at this technique, and I, I gave too much information that led to more questions, led to more questions. Eventually, they tripped me up. And then, you know, then the cage slammed shut, essentially. So I was, I was you know, essentially, essentially under arrest, really, for an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, I've read some of these things uh, where they say, you know, just continually ask, am I free to go? Am I being detained? And so on. And what I find interesting about that is um, the idea that because they are bound by particular rules, then those rules, you know, they have to follow them and so on. And of course, in my experience and understanding, the, the police, they, they don't have to follow any rules in particular. They can do whatever they want. That's, I mean, this is fantasy that there's this magic spell called the rules that is going to protect you just seems to me not a valid. So, I mean, I've been going back and forth across the border, of course, uh, for, for business and, and for FDR for 20, 20 plus years. And yeah, I mean, you, you answer the questions honestly, openly, maintain eye contact, be friendly, uh, and uh, resist the urge to babble. I mean, <laughs> that's certainly been my, my experience. You know, uh, and and just, so you know, as, as short a possible reply as, as you can provide uh, while, you know, maintaining eye contact and being friendly. I think that's, uh, I think that's always been the best uh, approach for me. Well, you're, you're right. And what's, what's nice about what you just said is that it, it implies that you prepared well for it. Whereas when I got out of that plane, you know, I was just bouncing around happy as can be, uh, feeling a little bit mischievous and yeah, a little bit eccentric and, you know, I was, I was doing this sort of banter, you know, with the, with the passport office, which I tend to do because I, I tend to look at these people as just human beings, you know. And uh, but this was, I think, I think this was my mistake, right? Because then I, you know, I misspoke a little bit. I was a little bit, how would you say, you know, just a little bit too superficial, you know, and uh, kind of trying to cheer people up, which I do actually. When I see a sad bureaucrat, my impulse is to want to make them smile you know but you know that was my mistake uh because I, as I made a couple of miss misstatements they looked at me they thought this guy's dressed like a loon why don't we just snag him and and pump information pump him for information and find out what he's really about and it could have been yeah I, I think it's sort of like siegfried and roy with the lions in vegas you know i mean for the most part, the lions are going to be fairly cooperative, but you know you do have to remember that they are dangerous predators as well, and treat them with the proper respect. Uh, and no, respect, I mean, just in terms of caution, not in terms of like looking up to them morally. But yeah, they're in the matrix. They they genuinely believe that they are protecting the homeland from dangerous people. I'm quite positive they have quotas. So if they get a bunch of nice people in a row, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be snagged for something. And um, I think the important thing is is to be friendly and cooperative. This idea that you sort of just, you know, block them at every move and refuse to give up any information, I think that's just going to lead you into a whole world of trouble. And I think the oh, important I, thing, of course, is to just live a life where you don't have that much particular to hide uh, from the government and uh, just be honest and, and forthright. I think if you, you put that wall up, I think, you know, they're going to escalate. And the problem is, of course, as government officials, they have an infinitely greater capacity to escalate than you have to resist. Yeah, I, I think you know that's really true. And if and if you do now, I mean, I had my own sort of form of private resistance while I was waiting 
to to be called back, I just watched you know an episode of Breaking Bad, which is a fun little irony that I enjoyed. Uh, but but because they didn't know that. But I think that's right. You know, I mean, you you can't you can't actually confront them because it's just going to create more trouble for you. And another point to remember, and every person who imagines themselves to be free right now needs to remember this: you're just one mishap away from being captured and being ruined and being wrecked, and potentially ruining every aspect of your supposed free existence. And everybody is in this position. It could happen to anybody. We're, this is the this is the situation we're all in. I mean, we're all deeply vulnerable. We need to practice. We need to prepare. And uh, just be aware of it. Work for freedom, and both in a public and a private and a private way. But just remember that we're whatever freedom you think you have right now, you know, vis-a-vis the state, is essentially, you know, conditional and and largely illusory, actually. Yes, yes, and certainly, if it does seem to be becoming a difficult, dangerous, or escalating situation. I think clamming up and getting a lawyer is, is the best thing to do um, because, of course, there is lots of capacity for self-incrimination or because we don't know what the laws are that we could or could not break. You know, there's that book out that says we all do three felonies a day. And um, so, yeah, I think be friendly and positive if you just happen to get into the more of some, you know, uniformed sadist, uh, then, yeah, then friendliness is going to be perceived as weakness. And then I think it's time to clam up and ask for a lawyer. Um, but uh, I think, in, uh, you know, for the most part, they're, they're not cruel people. They're not mean people. They are people who believe that they're providing a genuinely positive public service. They're keeping terrorists out. They're keeping drug dealers out. They're keeping illegal immigrants out. They're protecting the homeland. And uh, I think that's just an important thing to remember. It's, it's, a lo- it's a long way from our perspective, but that's one of the great challenges of empathizing uh, with people who are a long way away from your perspective that um, – they do think they're doing the right thing, and if uh, you know, and they have no exposure or experience with any kind of uh, true liberty philosophy, and so they won't, uh, they simply won't come over, and there's just no possibility that they're going to sort of understand what it is that you, where it is that you're coming from, and so on. So um, yeah, I think um, uh, recognize that they are, um, you know, for the most part, pretty nice people who have you know imbibed a huge amount of propaganda and are trying to do the right thing according to the principles that they hold. And um, recognize that accordingly, and that this is not a place for political debate. Right, and you know the other, the other thing is they might not even believe in the system actually that they're a part of, but they believe that they're a part of that system, right? So they have to sort of function in that capacity, and they they even if they think it's a ridiculous bureaucracy and they're embarrassed to be working there, uh, they are socialized by that by that work that they're doing if they've been there any length of time. One of the things that fascinated me, and we've all experienced this, is that you go from being initially under suspicion and then treated as if you're probably, you know, a grave danger and you're the the enemy. And then once you're sort of absolved from, from this, you somehow pass the test, which, you know, I had no idea whether I was going to pass or not. I don't even know what that means to pass, you know. Um, then suddenly you're you're one of the good guys, you know. So she comes back with my cell phone and it's like, well, Mr. Tucker, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, you know. Um, everything's great, you know, take off. And that's when I kind of pressed her about why this happened in the first place and, and that sort of thing. But it was very, it's very alarming. Do you have the same person on both sides? I'm still me, she's still who she is. For, for an hour and a half, essentially, I am 
on, I'm, I'm threatened essentially with being captured in jail. You know, I don't, I don't know what are they going to find on my cell phone that they're going to object to. Um, how many little small white lies did I tell in the course of my interrogation? And what is the, what is the consequence of that? You know, how much did I fudge, you know, a date, uh, a purpose, all these sorts of things. Um, it's really none of their business. So, you know, we're inclined to, to not be entirely forthcoming. Um, and, and quite frankly, I wasn't actually just to be a uh, full disclosure here, but what is the, what is the consequence of that? You know, I wasn't actually sure. I mean, are you, is it really a penalty of perjury? Uh, oh yeah. You if you lie, uh, I mean, if you lie, you turn what could be just an innocuous, but scary experience into a full on wreck your life kind of situation. So definitely do not lie, uh, to, to government well, officials. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're allowed to lie to you. Of course, uh, they're allowed right. to lie in interrogation. They're allowed to mislead you. They're allowed to openly falsify what it is that they're talking about. But if you lie to a government official and they find out, then it doesn't matter if you're Santa Claus on his way to deliver presents, uh, you're in a whole world of trouble. So I think that's a really important thing to remember. You know, it's a little bit strange, isn't it? That I mean, what, what kind of lies do you mean? Like if you, you have a piece of beef jerky in your, in, your, in your sock and they ask you, do you have any meat products? And you say no. Uh, would that constitute a lie that, that could... Uh... Absolutely. Yeah, no. And if they catch you lying to them, then they're going to assume that everything that you say is false. And they're going to need to verify absolutely everything. And that's, um, and, and of course, to, to lie to a government official is a crime. You know, somebody told me, they said, well, there's no way that during the period in which they had your unlocked cell phone, that they could legally go through your cell phone and look at every Facebook message you've ever sent, every email. You know, they had access to everything, right? My entire web history. They have access to my, my entire Google profile. I mean, with, with an unlocked cell phone, you have everything you would ever want to know about me. And this person said there's no way that they did that because that's just illegal. They can't, they can't <laughs> do that. Uh, I think that that's actually incorrect. And the reason I say that is that the person next to me who was uh, visiting from Japan, he apparently had a family member in Canada, as best I could tell. And he had... Uh, misled them about the existence of this fellow and where he lives. And they held him under intense questioning the entire time I was there. But at some point, they got his uh, computer or cell phone or something and was ter interrogating him, confronting him with, with the fact that he had apparently communicated through email with this person who lives in Canada as like a cousin or a brother or something like that. And that he had told them that this was not the case they presented the evidence that it in fact was the case and yes they were confronting him so therefore you lied to us why did you lie to us and so on so i know they can do this right i saw this actually happening there's no you know need for a warrant or any they can do anything is that your understanding too they can do anything that they want to yeah and look let's say that what they do is not legal Let's just say that. Um, well, so what? I mean, what that means is basically you're then embroiled in a legal fight that is likely to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars and go on for years. I mean, who wants that? Right. You know, and, and the best that you can hope for is to be restored to where you were before you lied. 
but minus a hundred thousand dollars in years of stress. So, uh, so no, I mean, I, I think just always, uh, uh, always tell the truth. Uh, there, there's no magic rule that says they can or can't do anything. I mean, you've probably seen these cop shows where the cops uh, want to go into someone's apartment and they don't have a warrant. And what do they do? They say, hey, did, did you hear that? I thought I heard someone crying out for help. And then they just kick the door in because they're allowed to enter without a warrant if they believe that somebody's in danger. And then they can say, well, I guess it must have been a TV next door. Maybe it was somebody outside or I don't know. But I, I, you know, we all heard somebody crying for help. So we went in. So the rules, they just, I mean, don't, don't rely on the rules to protect you. Just rely on honesty and friendliness and empathy with uh, the people that you're dealing with and uh, go on your way. And don't carry a, uh, an unlocked cell phone, you know, and, 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 and put it in, in front of the bureaucrat saying, yeah, here's, here's the number. That was the, the, the dumbest thing um, I've ever done, actually, in retrospect. Well, I mean, dumb, you know, after the fact, it's easy, right? In, in the moment, right. it's, um, uh, you know, remember as well, of course, I mean, it's, they, they are, uh, you know, very experienced and well-trained at what they do. And this is your first situation in that right. situation, right? So, so you know, I don't jump into the ring with Mike Tyson in his prime and say, well, I play a little bit, a little bit of Xbox boxing, so I'm sure I'm, I'm good to go, right? Respect experience, respect training. Uh, and also, you're under stress, and they're not. So you, you, can't, you can't compete with them. I mean, just have, I, I think it's really important for us all to have respect for experience and, and training and so on. And uh, you can't just jump into that situation and win. It doesn't matter how smart you are. The fact is that you're not trained, you're under stress. They're experienced, they're not under stress. Uh, they're going to win. I mean, this is why everybody needs a lawyer. You, you can't, I mean, if you're ever interrogated by the police, uh, heaven forfend, but, um, you know, they, they know what they're doing and you don't. And they have nothing at stake really in particular, but you have everything at stake. Uh, and um, so uh, it's, that this is why you need, this is why you need professionals uh, on your side in these kinds of situations. But, um, and, and also, so uh, yeah, you no can say, what? well, that was kind of dumb or this and that and the other, but you know, they're very practiced at uh, being friendly and positive and saying, oh, can I just see that cell phone for a moment? And if you say no, what happens? I don't know. I don't know. Just pass in the cell phone. Be friendly and positive. And, and remember, it worked. You know, so you can say it was a dumb thing to do, but, but you, you know, you got out and, and it worked fine. Well, that's true. Um, the other thing that occurred to me is that whatever you, you think you're doing that's clever, they've seen a thousand times. Already. Oh yeah, yeah. They know. There's, you're like you're like trying to you're an amateur trying to play chess against Deep Blue. I mean, he's going twelve thousand moves ahead or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. So this, even my initial step of misstating my travel route, you know, was you know set off this sort of series of of, of events. And I, you know, it's funny when it's always the case that when you tell these stories, you know, there's some listener out there going. A, a big deal, uh, Tucker. You know this modeling, uh, whining. You were detained. You were inconvenienced by ninety minutes. You know, in exchange for which we get massive security or, or whatever. You know, but you know during the course of that ninety minutes, it's 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 the scariest sort of ninety minutes you'll ever experience if you've never been in it because yep. you don't really know what's going to happen to you, and you realize that anything could happen to you. And there's essentially nothing you could do about it. Um, yep. So it's not a normal just 90 minutes. If you if you knew the outcome in the middle of it, yeah, you would relax. You know, you do something else, uh, play Sudoku or whatever, and uh, you know, and and 
just goof off and have fun and just wait it out. But you don't really know in the course of it. You don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And you suddenly become aware that it could be very dangerous for you. It could be, it could be the very, it could be the end, you know? Yeah, no, know. It, it could be the giant crossroad in your life that goes from fun right. to hell. And of course now, I mean, it's not just that 90 minutes is not encapsulated. Now it moves forward into the next time you go across any border, you will remember that forever. And, uh, so yeah, it it just becomes sort of a permanent part of your life experience, and uh, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine afterwards. But you know, we we as a species are designed to catastrophize. You know, <laughs> catastrophizing is what keeps us alive, which is to to imagine the worst conceivable outcomes of just about any uh, any situation. Because those who didn't catastrophize, who said, "Oh, I'm sure that's not a tiger in the grass. I'm sure that's just some grass blowing back and forth," you know, they ended up as tiger poop the next day. So uh, we are designed as a species to catastrophize, to, to constantly dwell on the worst possible situations that could occur. Uh, that's what gets us out of the caves and into where we are now. Uh, and so in those kinds of situations, you, you can't stop that tsunami of catastrophization. Uh, to, to want to do that or to imagine you could rise above it would be to want to be some kind of different species or maybe even a non-life form. So that is um, that happens, and that you know you can't help but dwell on it again. Like a near miss with a tiger, you don't want to do that again. So you'll obsess about it afterwards. I mean, it's called PTSD, but it actually is a kind of survival mechanism. And I'm sure you've been thinking about it quite a bit afterwards, uh, and it has become a part of your alarm system now. So um, I can totally understand that it's a, it's a big deal. What do you think about the phrase "resist arrest"? I've thought about this some time. I mean. It's like the worst thing you can do, right? And and it's not strategic. It's not a good idea. But isn't that sort of an embedded impulse in the nature of the human person to to do what you can to avoid being captured? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whether it's an, a, a predator, a non-human predator or a predator, if something grabs you, then your impulse is to, to fight and resist and, and get away. Of course, right? right? I mean, in the tribal societies uh, where we sort of evolved, there was not, it wouldn't be somebody local who would do that except in fun. It would be an enemy tribesman, uh, some foreigner. And so to, to, to harm them and get away would be your impulse. And that would be the safest thing you could do. Uh, and of course, it would indicate that you were probably separated from your tribe, which, you know, we're not, we wouldn't be used to. So it's a perfectly natural uh, impulse. Uh, but it is, of course, um, you know, I just, these words that they use, resisting arrest, well, you know, it's like climate change denier. Uh, it's just, well, there is this fact. You're going to be arrested and you're resisting it and that's bad. Uh, and so right. it places the entire onus uh, of the use of, of force or the creation of problems on the person resisting the initiation of force. It's a blame the victim kind of thing, uh, which is, you know, tragically common. Uh, you know, just working on this documentary that basically makes the case that we're ruled not by the state but by language. Uh, and uh, if we can get through to clear language, uh, then we can get through to moral clarity and to change in the world. But as long as we're lost in, in the language of the state, uh, we'll never be free of the laws of the state because that's all they fundamentally are. Well, that's interesting. You know, I've thought, I've thought about this sometimes. So the idea is that if it's a government official who is giving you an order, uh, then you essentially have to kind of do a metaphysical sort of gutting of your heart and soul completely and surrender surrender it all to them or else uh, you will be destroyed that that's the claim and this happens whether it's a parking ticket you know or a border crossing or essentially any encounter with the government when they give an order then you must surrender 
everything about your humanity on the spot. Yeah. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty gigantic claim that the state has over us, actually. And, and as you yeah. say, the rule of law is useless under those conditions. And, they, and those conditions are pervasive um, all the time. Anytime you're given an order, you, you, can never, you can never resist them. Every other area of life, you know, you, you have an opportunity to kind of object or negotiate or, you know, uh, find some compromise solution or maybe pay a small fine for failing to comply with something. Uh, but when you're dealing with the state, everything's at stake. You, you must be a complete, you must demonstrate uh, a, a complete absence of self-ownership and, and demonstrate to them that they are 100% in control of every aspect of your life when they say they are, or else the results will be catastrophic for you. Yeah, I mean, and, and the interesting thing is the people who say that the laws of the state may protect you, well, of course, Bradley Manning was compelled by the law to make public or at least to report war crimes that he saw. And so he did. And although Obama committed to protect whistleblowers, uh, although what uh, the military was up to that, that Bradley Manning revealed was illegal, um, he goes to jail. And nobody else does. The people who are performing the war crimes don't go to jail. The person who is explicitly told he must report these crimes and he will be protected is the only one who goes to jail. Uh, and it's the same thing with Snowden, right? I mean, Snowden revealed illegal activity on the part of the NSA that they repeatedly lied to Congress about when questioned. And who's the only one on the run? Who's the only one in hiding? The people who broke the law? The people who lied to Congress? Well, no. It's, you, it's illegal for you and I to lie to a border guard, but it's completely legal for the head of the CIA or the NSA or whoever to lie to Congress. Uh, and then uh, the only people who reveal that. So people who say that the rules are there to protect you just got to ask these people who are actual whistleblowers and who are revealing uh, international war crimes, the worst conceivable thing that uh, human beings can do uh, in the eyes of any kind of justice. And they don't get punished, but the person who reveals the crime gets punished uh, despite acting in full accordance with the laws compelling him to do so. So uh, anyway, this is just something to, uh, to remember. You are not in a situation of rules and appealing to the rules. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, you, you can say when playing Monopoly with a pigeon that the pigeon is breaking the rules, but the pigeon don't, don't care, baby. <laughs> you know what? It does raise fundamental questions about this whole claim that you can restrain the state through the rule of law. I'm not against the attempt, but uh, it, it's not worked out very well. Because the problem is the institution itself, not so much the laws under which it operates. The laws can be terrible, can be worse or better, probably. But in the end, you know, all states are, by their nature, totalitarian and, and egregiously wicked, all states and all times and all places, because they operate under a different set of rules from the rest of the population. They're essentially lawless relative to the laws that you and I have to obey. And, well, uh, I think lawless may be a kind way of putting it. You know, we, we all hope, I hope to live in a lawless society, so to speak, in that it's not a centrally imposed initiation of force that is defined as the law. But they're anti-law in that that which empowers the government is specifically illegal 
for everyone else, right? As we all know, right. you and I can't initiate the use of force. The government is founded on the initiation of force. You and I can't counterfeit or declare war or incarcerate people at will. Uh, we can't pass rules that everyone in the neighborhood has to obey or we'll shoot them. So the government is actually is anti-law. And people have this weird thing, like the government is some sort of cow and, and the rules are these electric fences, you know, that somehow Harry Brown used to say, you know, that they, they wanted to to bind down the government in the chains of the Constitution, which I think comes from some sort of 18th century. That's the kind of rhetoric you would expect from the 18th century. And I mean, these are all wonderful images. They're just having nothing to do with what the state is. I mean, there are no chains. The government isn't right. something you can bind down. There's no fences that you can enclose the government around and have it stay in. Uh, basically, what you're doing is you're disarming everyone. And you're giving a small group of people all the weaponry in the known universe, crossing your fingers and hoping the power won't corrupt. I mean, this is a, it's a mad fantasy that's only believable because, you know, we're trained by the government to, to believe that it's somehow normal. Uh, and everyone gets when they look at every other country, well, our power corrupts. So, you know, well, boy, those, those Syrian guys are really bad or what Saddam Hussein is doing is really bad and so on. I'm not putting the Western leaders in the same moral category, but there's this belief that somehow power corrupts other people. And, you know, we, we, if somebody, you know, some guy wins a lottery, oh, that guy used to be a really nice guy. He turned into a real jerk once he got all this money or whatever. And we somehow imagine that, that money and, and fame and power and so on corrupts everyone we know. But there's this magic group of, of people that it somehow makes them better to have that which makes everyone else worse. And uh, uh, it's, it's just it's, it's a funny kind of thing that we just have to keep combing over as a species that it's just not true. Stefan, you'll be amazed to hear that. I wish I had mentioned this to you already. You can't imagine who I ran into at Libertopia. A certain man named Bernard von Nothaus. Now, this is a fellow who, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago or something like that, was, was one of the first to come up with the idea of a, of a competitive money with the state. And he invented a thing called the Liberty Dollar, which was just just a silver dollar. Anyway... Uh, arrested, ac accused of what? What? I think his crime was um, well, it was competing with the dollar essentially, and you know, put in jail for you know several months and something like that. Anyway, he was convicted. He's awaiting sentencing. He's been awaiting sentencing for two and a half years. Yeah. In the in the meantime, of course, he was a major influence behind Satoshi Nakamoto's invention of of Bitcoin. So. I, it's a it's a fascinating thing for me to be in the presence of this man who was, you know, took this outrageous leap into the future, and he's still he's still, uh, you know, out walking walking around in good spirits. Uh, sort of really fun to meet a real living monument to progress and and uh, an important figure in history just right there at Libertopia. Fantastic, and a guy who's taken the kind of bullets that hopefully we'll never have to take. Now, Jeff. Chatting be most enjoyable, but we do have a couple of listeners on the line who wish to pepper us with uh, questions. So, uh, Mike, if you'd like to bring up the first listener. Sure, Josh, you're up first. Go ahead. Hi, uh, can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, just good morning. And uh, just want to thank you both for everything you guys do. It's... Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, just had a few questions. Go ahead. <clears throat> now, just ask the first one, because if you get the I'm barrage not, of questions, we'll, we'll miss some for, for sure. So if we can just ask the first one, uh, that'd be great. 
well, the biggest thing is I'm a <clears throat> I'm a first year law student. I just started in law school a couple of weeks ago, and I just and if you've touched on this before, I'm catching up on the podcast. But um, w- what is it? Do you have any advice for like maintaining integrity in a corrupt situation, such as law school? And is it is it selling out to compromise? to get along in order to get to the end or does it mean to have integrity by you know if you hear a professor or a student saying something do should you answer that even if you're not going to win the argument because it's it's wrong to say what they're saying what is your goal in becoming a lawyer why are you pursuing that profession i'm not saying you shouldn't i'm just just curious why well a, it seems to fit my um, my aptitudes and my abilities, but also I originally wanted to become a lawyer to uh, run for office before I was a became an anarchist when I was still a libertarian. I tried to change things that way, and I thought that was a path towards that. But after – I have two goals. I want to either be a defense attorney and just represent people on a case-by-case basis. Um, against, you know, bad uh, prosecution, or I want to look into um, actually alternative dispute resolution, um, things like mediation and uh, arbitration. That's like a, almost competitive with the state, the courts, because those are, obviously we know what those are, but uh, looking into like competing with that in a way. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I've talked about it before, but uh, Jeff, what are your thoughts on uh, how to survive law school and prosper morally with that kind of education? Well, I mean, it's true in, in, in economics graduate school. I know a little bit more about that, but you'll hear always a lot of nonsense in, in the classroom. If your goal is to learn economics, there are better ways to do it than going to graduate school. So what is the goal of graduate school? Essentially, as I understand it, the purpose is to get the ticket, to get the license to, to practice in a, in a profession you really care about. So you need to always think about getting from from here to there. I don't, I don't believe you have the moral obligation to correct your professors, to um, to tell tell your your colleagues everything you're thinking at every moment. You you see it as a purely instrumental goal. As a, you know, as I say, if you want to learn the law, there are better ways to do it than going to law school. The purpose of law school is to is to get the 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 license to get out and practice and do some good for the world. Um, that's not always easy to do because, on one hand, you know. Uh, you've been exposed to sort of a fuller perspective, and it can be extremely uh, frustrating day to day. It's difficult to study and learn and embed yourself in a world that you don't really believe in. So it takes a lot of strength of character and a lot of you know serious conviction and a lot of energy. And you know it's something you have to you have to just kind of watch yourself. You know, uh, if you find yourself slipping and getting confused, just Take a deep breath and step back from it and just remember what, what always matters. You know, we all live in a world that's very confusing. I mean, for all of us, all the time, especially for people who believe in, you know, non-aggression and, 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 and human liberty. That is not the world we live in. So navigating it can, can be very trying and, and very difficult. But, you know, the cause of human liberty has always faced terrible barriers and and you know, uh, trying times going forward. I would just count this among them. I think 
you just have to dig really deep if you that's your goal you have to dig really deep within your yourself morally and spiritually and otherwise and find the stuff that that makes it possible and then when you achieve that goal do something spectacular for yourself and for humanity yeah and of course the only people who will really respect a law degree are people that you probably don't want to do a whole lot of business with you know i mean uh, People, I think, respect and recognize competence um, without the degrees if you're in uh, among sort of liberty-minded people and so on. And um, so I think, that's, I think that's one thing that's important to remember. The other thing, I mean, inserting yourself deep into the belly of the beast and becoming a defense attorney, I'm sure that there's some people you'll be able to help through that process, although probably a lot less than you think. Because as far as I understand it, the job of the defense attorney is to convince his clients to plea bargain. Right, because as you know, like 90, 95% of, of, I assume you're from the US, but I think it's similar throughout the world, uh, at least the Western world, 90 to 95% of, of, of uh, allegations against uh, potential criminals, uh, they don't go to court. They simply say, well, we'll give you 10 years unless you plea down to 18 months, and then you'll get off you know, in, in 12 months with good behavior. And, and also, we, you know, we're going to give you 10 years, and if you go to trial and you lose, you'll probably get 15. So you're basically uh, not, it has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It has nothing to do with proving everything. There are so many crimes now, uh, and in the U.S. in particular, such an incredibly high proportion of, of prisoners that the system simply could not function if the guilt or innocence of people had to be determined in any objective fashion. You know, trials are very expensive. They're, they're long-term. And uh, so this, the system as a whole can't possibly determine the guilt or innocence of everyone. So all they do is threaten people with ridiculously egregious jail sentences and then have them plead down. So your job as a defense attorney is delivering people who you will probably believe to be innocent into prison. You will be handling people, you will be flowing them through, and you will be telling them that it is probably in their best interest to accept a plea bargain regardless of their innocence or guilt and you will be delivering people who you believe to be innocent even if they're guilty of a crime uh, like, 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 like using drugs or something like that or prostitution then you don't believe I would assume if you're a libertarian or, or an anarchist you don't believe that that's a crime that's as a state invented uh, crime and so you will be delivering people uh, every day you will be delivering a dozen people into the prison system that you believe uh, are, are innocent I I can't imagine that it's going to leave your soul untarnished. Uh, I mean, you may be helping them reduce higher crime sentences or longer crime sentences and so on, but you will be handing innocent people over to the tragic rape rooms of the American prison industrial complex. Uh, you know, boy, looking at doing that for 40 years, I, you know, given your belief system and given that you'll be surrounded by people who believe the exact opposite of what you believe and you are knowingly and willingly participating in a system that hands the innocent over, to incarceration and, frankly, sexual torture for the most part, I got to think that I would be cautionary about that as a good and productive and happy way to spend your precious life. Uh, really, really think about that is what you're going to be doing. I'd sure hate for you to work hard, hard, hard to get the degree, to get the job, to get in there, and to just find it was morally repulsive to hand people over in the system uh, rather than tell them to fight for their innocence because you have to, of course, act in the best interest of your client. That's part of your... Uh, legal, your professional dedication, and I just don't think in the system a defense attorney is going to be getting people off. I think what they're going to be doing is is handing people over to prisons who they, who you in particular believe to be innocent. So, I would really caution you about that. I, I think just right. I mean, if you can, um, you know, there's some professions that you can't in any way or shape or form legally practice, 
without a license. Can you come up with a great dispute resolution organization without being a lawyer? Well, sure. If you're appealing to the libertarian community, they're frankly not going to really care about whether or not you have professional credentials. They're going to care about the quality of the work that you produce and, and how rigorous it is, how rational it is, and how well you work with people. So um, just remember the opportunity cost of what you're pursuing could be very high. If you end up working in a non-libertarian community, I think it's going to be really rough on, on you. And if you end up working in a libertarian community, then the credentials are going to mean probably a lot less. Like I don't think, you know, Jeff runs laissez-faire books. I don't think that they said to him, you know, um, uh, have you had a New York Times bestselling book? Uh, have you taken book publishing in school? No, they just looked at his general skills and competence. Uh, I, uh, an unlettered and unlicensed amateur from the internet, am doing fairly well in getting people to listen because the quality of the thought, I think, is what people look for in the libertarian community. So uh, those would be the two things that, that I would mention. Uh, obviously, it's up you to you, to, but at least consider that. There's an additional fact. What's really nice today is that there's a really good chance that within law school, you're going to find other libertarians, other people that, that listen to Stefan Mulliner's, you know, show and have read all the cool stuff. I think it's very likely that you'll find colleagues within law school who more or less share your point of, point of view. And it's kind of an, it would be a kind of honest thing to hook up with them and start a little libertarian well, cell. That's a, that's yeah. can be a source of sanity. There is a – it's called the Federalist Society. It's like a – it's a very libertarian, conservative-leaning uh, group. It's on all – pretty much all law campuses, but ours is a bit of a a bit of a joke. They're, yeah. They do one speaker a month, and they're not really very serious about it. But uh, looking for people out of that group would make a lot of sense. And a lot of these – I thought I had – figured a lot of these problems out before I actually began school. I thought I had uh, worked out the arguments and justified it to myself, but a lot of what you were mentioning that would come after I graduated is starting to really hit me now, especially in my ironically that you started the, you were, two were talking about this earlier uh, it's called our legislation and regulations class and it's all about the, the regulatory state that's popped up in the last since the 30s, but especially in the last 40 years or so with all the extra governmental agencies and uh it's it could literally be an anti-practical anarchy book because they make all the arguments we hear all the time and that's the class i have the hardest time with because i know what to say i know that they're just leaving out half the argument but it's just what's the point and that's part of the problem i'm having because i thought i'd be able to survive three years of this but Boy, it's starting to look like there's there's no uh, no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, especially with the defense attorney side of things. So that's just I thought I had figured a lot of this out beforehand, but now that I'm in it, it sure seems a lot uh, a lot cloudier. So that's right. just why I wanted to get some clarification on your guys' opinions. Yeah. <clears throat> well, listen, I know you had some other questions, but we do have some other callers. So if we have time at the end, we'll come back. But I think we'll have to move on to the next one. And, and best of luck. I mean, do drop me a line if you can. Let me know what your decision is. I'm always curious to see what happens uh, after the Oz curtain closes. But uh, thanks so much for your call and, and best of luck with you. I certainly you know, respect the, the intellectual abilities that you obviously have to get into law school. I mean, you would be a valuable resource to any movement. And um, I just hate you to get sucked into something that would uh, be very corrupting. So um, uh, best of luck to you. Let me know how it goes. And if we could move on to the next caller, please. 
All right, Joe, go ahead. All right. Good morning, Stefan and Jeffrey. Um, I'm 18 years old, and uh, I'm attending a private liberal arts college. Um, I've always been interested in economics, stuff like that. Um, Mainly once I started reading about the uh, Federal Reserve, corporatism, banking, and all that, it really got me interested. And um, and I started uh, reading about like libertarian philosophy, stuff like that, and it it just kind of clicked. And um, I kind of think that's what I want to do, you know, keep spreading it. And uh, and like even with like my, my friends and stuff, I you know talk about it, and I, I'm kind of surprised about how open people actually are, at least in my circles with uh, discussing such ideas. Uh, at first, you know, usually there's a little hesitance, but um, as long as, you know, I can relate to them and stuff, they, they start to open up, especially, um, you know, if they respect me, which they, they do. And, uh, and it's always really interesting. But um, uh, in college, I, I want to get a uh, degree in economics. Um, kind of, I want to learn the economic system as much as I can, because um, I understand its its importance and uh, have been affected by it <laughs> numerous times, especially uh, uh, thanks to my student loans, which is one of the reasons why I'm going to try to graduate early from college. But um, I was uh, just kind of wondering um, if you guys think that that uh, going to college and going to, and uh, Get involved with like economics and stuff like that. If that's really the right thing to do, and um, and really like what what can someone who uh, wants to uh, spread this philosophy really do either in college or after college? Because um, I mean I know there's other people my age. Uh, I got quite a few friends who who want to do something, but it's kind of like you know what what more can we do? I was just curious yeah. to see what your thoughts were. No, that's that. uh, I mean, it's a very big question, of course, and and I appreciate uh, you calling in. Eighteen is a is a glorious a glorious age. I mean, don't get me wrong, forty six doesn't suck either, but uh, eighteen is a glorious age because you your whole future, your vista, your horizons, the possibilities are fantastic. But the choices, of course, that you make in your youth, um, you know, it's like if you're sailing a ship across an ocean, you know, one or two degrees off course, it puts you in a different continent. So, uh, you know, and, and with the previous caller, too, with uh, it's really important to, to, to really think through. And, now, of course, the challenge is, you know, fa- factually, your brain is still six or seven years away from its final maturation, but you have to make these decisions now. So I really uh, compliment you on the attention that you're putting into the decisions that you make now, how you're going to spend best spend your life in the pursuit of virtue and happiness. I think that, of course, is the, the great challenge of, of life. Uh, when you live in a corrupt society, virtue does not always lead to happiness. We would love to live in a society where the good were rewarded with jelly beans every time we did the right thing, but unfortunately, we live in this really challenging to negotiate society where um, vice is very often exceedingly well rewarded and virtue is considerably punished. So virtue and happiness, uh, which should be synonymous, um, are not. And so it is a great challenge. Um, this is my big lead up into saying I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to toss it over to Jeff because I like the easy ones. You know, what color do you like? What is the airspeed of the African swallow? Uh, all the easy questions I will take. But Jeff, this one seems quite challenging. So uh, I, I love it into your propeller blades of reason. 
Well, you know, and, and you've lobbed this over me just as a train is coming by, so I may have to talk over a train. Um, do you hear that? I don't know. I've train? got my volume pretty low to make sure there's no echo, but I don't hear anything. There's, there's going to be a there's You can be a say train. it's my train of thought. This is my train. There we go. Oh, there, there you com- go. There you go. Oh, wow. Commerce. Capitalism. Okay. Um, so I've been doing a lot of st- study on the history of entrepreneurship. You know, everybody knows these days that most of the great entrepreneurs of our time uh, found that college was too much of an opportunity cost to bother with because they had too many great things to, to do in the world of, of enterprise. And I thought this was kind of a new thing. But if you look back back all the way to the Gilded Age, uh, great entrepreneurs have really never found much about college that, that interests them at all. They have a restless vision and, and beautiful things to, to do for the world. So um, I think it's really good that people not, that if you feel a calling towards uh, life and, and commerce and, and entrepreneurship and, and, and enterprise, that you not waste waste your time. Uh, you're, you're young. If you see an opportunity and you just feel this sort of burning passion to jump on it, go for it. Don't worry about it, and you'll be better off as a result. For one thing, you won't have racked up a gigantic student debt, which is, you know, a form of slavery for people today. This the student debt nonsense has has been catastrophic for a whole generation. People graduating with six figures in debt. That you are not a free person, holding a degree and a hundred thousand dollars of debt, and you cannot make any choices about anything you do. You are at that point a complete. You're completely in a cage. Uh, you have no options left. Every, your life is just dictated to you. Um, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing, so avoid that no matter what. I mean, it seems to me you're far better off dropping out than getting involved in that sort of student uh, debt racket. On the other hand, if you do have a calling towards academia um, or that you need that sort of license to practice, you know, say in economics or something, um, College can be a wonderful experience. One of the things that's that I liked most about um, all the economics classes I took is that the more that I, I took them and studied the mainstream material, the more beautiful and elegant uh, something like you know the Austrian tradition of, of Hayek and Mises are. If you just read Hayek and Mises or Rothbard or any of this sort of tradition, you know, isolated from what mainstream economics teaches. It's, it's cool, it's compelling, it's interesting, it's beautiful. Uh, but you don't sort of get the fire and the passion and the, the vastness of the brilliance of the Austrian tradition until you studied the mainstream stuff. So I think that's one of the main merits, actually, of, of, uh, of, of going to conventional mainstream economics classes is that, you know, the alternative within the Austrian tradition is all the more spectacular. So for me, it's kind of a, a fun intellectual game. And uh, I rather enjoy it. You know, if you need the degree, if the resources are there and it's not going to compromise your own personal freedom and your own independence in the course of getting this college degree, because Lord knows it is absolutely not necessary today to have a college degree in order to have wild success, um, you know, and, and um, in the commercial world. I'm really <coughs> thrilled to see more and more programs coming along that allow for these kind of one-year experiences. My friend Isaac Morehouse has established a thing called uh, Praxis, which is a one-year program that 
trained you in the liberal arts and in economics and politics and history of culture and and even science, all sorts of things over the course of one year, while embedding you within a kind of, uh, you know, internet startup or a software firm or some commercial company, so that you you always maintain your connection to reality. That's the really terrible thing about college, is it detaches you from <clears throat> the mainstream of life, you know? Um, Praxis tries to embed you within the mainstream of commercial life while giving you a good education. Well, you know, and the other thing I would mention as well is that um, in Canada here, it takes about an average of seven years to get a PhD. And let's say that I said, well, I want to do a philosophy show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend the next seven years running up 100000 or more in debt and getting a PhD in philosophy. And then I'm going to start a philosophy show. Uh, I don't think I'd actually know more about philosophy than having just started up a philosophy show and being batted back and forth with great questions and great challenges and great debates, interviewing great experts, speaking with really smart listeners and so on. And so I actually have made money instead of spent money. Uh, I have learned a lot more about philosophy in the marketplace of ideas which I inhabit rather than if I'd gone to some professor and said, uh, oh, tell me the wise ways of the world, my senior. So I right. think doing doing with a conscious attention to what you're doing is the best way to learn. Uh, it, you know, the, for, I didn't take any courses in business before I became an entrepreneur, but I was very conscious and, and thought a lot about what I was doing as I was doing it. And so I think that um, if you want to uh, learn and you have the opportunity to do and to earn while you're learning, that is the best way to do it, no, no matter what. I mean, I could have a PhD now and be starting off at podcast one. Uh, instead, I have, you know, 3,000 podcasts and uh, a bunch of speaking engagements, a documentary coming up and all that, which is actually, I think, practical and useful stuff. Could some of the podcasts have been better if I'd done a PhD in philosophy? Absolutely. No question. No doubt. Would I have the established body of work that I do? Would I have the income that I do from the show? Uh, no, not at all. And so, uh, and also time is of the essence, right? The four years, I think next four years are going to be pretty critical, pretty crucial in the freedom movement. If you want to reach and teach, you don't need... Uh, a PhD, right? So a lot of the people who defined the libertarian movement, uh, who were into politics and into education, uh, well, what were the only avenues available? I mean, they couldn't become uh, journalists. Uh, the, the, the books that they wrote would never have become bestsellers. There was no podcasting. There was no YouTube. So they had to basically, if they wanted to get the message out, they had to go and teach college courses, or they had to go to political candidates and get, get the political candidates as the big microphone to get the word out there. But the internet has changed everything, everything. And that which worked in the past or that which was the only available opportunities in the past is no longer what's available now. You know, I'm reaching about 100,000 people a day on a good day through this show. 100,000 views uh, and podcast downloads, not to count all the mirrored sites and all the books, which I don't really track. But um, 100,000 people, I mean, that's in one day, that's more than you'd ever reach in your entire career, far more than you'd ever reach in your entire career as an academic uh, over 40 years. I mean, it's 10 times what you'd reach. So uh, given the, the technology, if you want to reach out and, and change people or, or help them get better at thinking, you simply don't need the option of college professor. That's what was around before. And I think the people who did that were right to do that. It made sense to do that. But if you've got, you know, if you spend four years working on how best to communicate in a public forum and, and doing the hard knocks of just going out there and communicating and getting feedback and trying to improve, I think that you'll end up in a better place, in a better position than going to um, study, which, you know, you say, well, I want to learn about economics by going to college. 
uh, that's not to me. That's not you know learn about economics by being an entrepreneur and and studying on your own. That to me is a better approach. Uh, but uh, we we like the security, and we also like not not having to earn credibility by who we are. We like having credibility by our our credentials. Uh, but I think all the people of great greatest quality in this world. I don't care about your credentials. They care about um, your presentation, your thought, uh, the accuracy, conciseness, and um, rationality of what it is you propose. And that is not going to be helped much at all in college. But, you know, that that is such a great statement, Stephen. You know, and really, I'm so glad you made it because I had sort of contrasted, you know, being an entrepreneur with being an intellectual as if being an intellectual required this sort of academic path is nonsense. I, I've gone through a list of my favorite living intellectuals. You know, you list the top 20. Well, three or four of them actually have uh, positions in universities. Um, and you know, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything, really. I mean, uh, you, can, you can be a great intellectual and a great writer and a great contributor to the world of ideas completely outside of academia without any credentials whatsoever. And then I look at the people that I admire the most who are embedded in academia and it's not because of their embeddedness in that institutional environment that makes them great. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's the fact that they're sort of the rebels, that they depart from the system, that they kind of smash the system and, 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 and go against it and, and do things they're not supposed to do that nobody approves of them to do. And they're regarded as kind of the campus radicals and, and the revolutionaries. Uh, that's what's so great about the, the handful of, uh, of uh, official academics that I really, really admire is the extent to which they depart from the structure. That makes them especially magnificent. Well, and the other thing, too, about academics and, and credentials is they limit your the nimbleness of your response to changing conditions. So if you go get an economics degree or a law degree or a business degree, then you're pretty much going to focus on those respective disciplines. But what if those respective disciplines are not actually what is most important in, um, in changing things? Uh, just possibility, right? I mean, obviously, uh, I love the philosophy. I love the economics. I love uh, all of that stuff. But, you know, in my show, uh, I open the topic to everything and everyone uh, can bring whatever they want to the table. And one of the great surprises of doing the show was the degree to which people want uh, philosophy to, to affect their personal decisions, which is kind of what you're calling it about, which I think right. is fantastic. And so, if, but if all I'd study was economics and then somebody came in with a, you know, personal problem about some family thing or, or some marriage thing or some parenting thing, I'd say, well, no, I'm sorry, I've just studied economics, so I can't really answer that question. But what if that's actually a really important question to answer? You know, what if, you know, my sort of general theories about raising a generation uh, peacefully is, is the best way to bring about freedom? Well, if you've studied economics or law, you can't really go into those topics. But what if those are, in fact, the most topics, the most important topics? So I like the nimbleness and responsiveness of simply facing the marketplace and attempting as best you can to, to volley back whatever it fires at you from whatever direction. I really like that nimbleness of response that comes out of my entrepreneurial history. Uh, but of course, when you become an academic, uh, you are only going to deal with people who are interested in learning economics and you're only going to be teaching economics and other areas you don't have the nimbleness of response because you've already gone for where you're credentialed and that's where your money's going to be, that's where your audience is going to be but it's not the real world audience. Academics is an audience of people who want to be in academics um, and there may be some generalists in there and all, but for the most part, particularly as you get higher up in the field, there are people jumping up for the dangling fruit of PhDs and, and tenureship professors and tenure professorships and so on. But I really, really like the nimbleness of just simply facing the market, uh, facing 
customers yeah. facing the world and trying as best as I can with uh, as few principles as possible. I mean, as few consistent principles as possible because if it's too complicated, nobody can understand it. Really trying to answer questions that are important to people. Um, but as soon as you go into a discipline, you're kind of sealed in that discipline. And if, you know, if people are right and it's economics, not whatever I talk about, that's the way forward, then, you know, good for them and bad for me. But if it's not, you're kind of locked in. And I think that's not the kind of nimbleness that I think real thinkers are after. You know, there's another side to that. We probably should move on, but I, let me just add, add something here. Some people want to have it both ways. They say, well, I want to go into academia, but the ideas I want to study are only libertarian ideas. So I want to study economics, I want to study the economics of the divine So I want to study ethics, but I only want to study the ethical systems of Ayn Rand. Uh, this is absurd, actually. I mean, nobody goes into architecture saying, well, I want to study architecture, but I'm only dedicated to ba the Bauhaus form and nothing else. You know, this can't happen to you. If you're going into academia, you've got to go all the way in, and you've got to be prepared to just embed yourself in that world completely. And if, and, if, and if you're not interested in doing that, if you don't have curiosity about other points of view and you don't have the tolerance for, for that thing, you should just stay out completely. And, and this is a serious matter because you know, for years I've, I've received questions from people and they say, I want to study economics at the graduate level, but I only want to study the Austrian tradition. My answer is, well, why do you want to go to graduate school? You know. I mean, that's not what graduate schools specialize in, actually. If you want to study only the Austrian tradition, study it. Move on with your life. Forget this graduate school stuff. Um, you've got to have a particular vocation if, uh, to be in graduate school for economics. You have to be prepared to study um, everything, everything associated with it. Um, and, you know, you get hit with all kind of nonsense, you know, every single day. And if you have a low tolerance for that, which I totally get, you know, then move on with your life. Forget the, forget the graduate school. Sometimes I think people use schooling as an excuse not to start living. I don't know if that's, if that's clear what I mean, but uh, sometimes it's best just to start your life rather than just keep delaying and delaying and delaying in the name of education. Right. So have we sufficiently confused you to, to make you, your future course in life completely incomprehensible or has this been at all helpful um i think i think it's been very helpful especially uh uh jeffrey's um comments at the end about being about uh um understanding you know all philosophies because that's you know the only way you can really you know prove anything is if you can you know disprove something else um uh, and I, I think you know when it comes to economics that's that's Telling people something different than what they believe, especially in that, is really difficult. And it's also um, an area where lots of people don't know much about. And that, you know, that makes it really hard to talk about. Like people who, who um, don't know anything about the Federal Reserve, you start talking to them about reserve ratios, and then you know, that's way over their head. Um, and being able to do that, you know, that's, that's, that's important. And, yeah, and uh, certainly academia will not help. teach you how to translate things yeah. to the masses. <laughs> so I think basically yeah. what we're saying, and I don't want to paraphrase Jeff here, we're saying we can either give you a copy of the Kama Sutra or you can go and actually have sex. And that would be, uh, if you're 18, and I think I remember 18 pretty well in this regard, uh, the book is not where you want to go. So uh, I hope that helps. And again, just drop us a line, let us know how it goes. Uh, and um, 
Yeah, just keep exploding possibilities. You know, there are these grooves that society sets up for you, these train tracks that they're constantly encouraging you to get on. And they are kind of safe because when you make a, a, a decision that's different from what society expects, then you are going to face challenge and skepticism and what you're throwing away your future and bloody, bloody, blah. But um, I think if you're into this kind of, uh, I, I think, really good philosophy, you're into really good philosophy, then I think that you do have to question everything. And I think that experience is better than learning. And the opportunity cost of education, you got to really strongly justify them. Uh, certainly with an undergraduate degree, it's hard to justify. You've got an undergrad in, in, um, uh, in economics. Well, but that's cost you four years, probably two, three hundred thousand bucks in debt and missed opportunities. And what does it get you? If you go all the way, then you're even more in the hole and so on. And, and it becomes and it's also confining. The more that you, um, you know, this is a fallacy of sunk costs, right? So the more one of the reasons why you can't become a professor unless you get a Ph.D., which didn't used to be the case. I had a professor of English at McGill who only had a B.A., but he was like he made Methuselah look like uh, Ricky Schroeder. Uh, he was incredibly <laughs> old. So he could get a, a professorship back in the day with only a B.A., but one of the reasons why you have to have a PhD is that you become incredibly conservative the more you invest in something because the risk of failing at it becomes just that much greater. If you go all the way through getting a PhD, you know, you've spent, what, 10, 12, 15 years uh, and you're in debt huge amounts and, and you've, you've become radically unfit for anything else. And so you become incredibly conservative, like you just have to get that academic job. Whatever you have to do, whatever compromises you have to make, you're just going to make them. It's a way of making sure that people are incredibly conservative and don't rock the boat. You know, like this tenureship was originally designed to protect radical thinkers. Now it actually just ensures that nobody who's actually radical will ever get hired because you can't get rid of them. So uh, I'd really um, uh, try and get you, get you out into the world sooner rather than later unless there's some real compelling reason for it. So thank you very much. I think up next we have Kaliob. 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 Yep, Caleb, you're next. Ah, there you go. Hello. There's somebody who respects the listeners. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, first of all, it's a, it's a great honor to talk to you and uh, Jeff um, of your books. So thank you for putting those out. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, my question was, I, I'm, I'm an engineer, kind of a technical type, who just kind of recently discovered uh, the joy of being in a live theater. Uh, community, local community theater, and uh, it's been a great time, really eye-opening. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't do it before. Sorry, and do you I mean to watching ask you, or doing? Uh, doing. I've been in a few shows, and it's going to be uh, – got some Shakespeare coming up. That's so cool. Oh, fantastic. How exciting. Oh, was it so, um, uh, James I know, Woods? Uh, James Woods actually has a master's in engineering. He's, I think, a very twitchy, intense, and great actor. Uh, the Boost, which is not a great film, has just an incredible performance by him as a cocaine, a cocaine addict, I think it is. But So, you know, you're in good company if you've got a technical degree and you, uh, you like the arts. So, go ahead. Well, uh, I know that in, in high school I was still a technical type and I kind of loudly decried uh, theater as especially Shakespeare is antiquated and uh, not speaking to modern audiences. And, uh, yeah, I, I said a lot of things very loudly as, as high schoolers aged folks are like to do but now that i'm into it i can really see the value uh and, and brilliance of uh of theater in general and shakespeare in particular i wanted to know what you guys thought i know you guys have a a very unique combination of respect for modernity with uh also a uh, really appreciation for for what's come before so oh ask yeah, jeff yeah, there, go, go to town well, there, are, there are certain figures that emerge you know in the history of of the uh, known humanity that just sort of soar above the rest. 
and I would say, you know, Bach and Mozart and, and Shakespeare, um, you know, are, are easy, easy choices in that regard. I mean, you know, the, the beautiful thing about Shakespeare is that, you know, he touches into the human imagination. He deals with all these extremely difficult and complex human, uh, human dilemmas, moral problems, and uh, doesn't give you, in a sense, doesn't sort of give you answers, you know, out on a plate. And that, that's so, that's what's so fun about him, you know, because it, 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 it sparks imagination. And it's a tribute to me to the persistence of, of human problems, of freedom, of power, of, of, of envy and jealousy, uh, rage and impulse towards peace and all these kind of things that we recognize ourselves so completely and and you know all the works of Shakespeare uh, so I mean no there's some art and some literature that just will last forever I have the highest respect for this and the reason is that I myself am a writer and the day after I've written anything I pretty much don't like it anymore and a year later, I don't even want to look at it because it strikes me as terribly dated and absurd. But great literature still has has more meaning later than it did even when it came when it came out. And Shakespeare is is one of those things. So I, I hope you agree with me, but that's certainly my point of view. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one wonderful thing about Shakespeare is the incredible compression of thought. In his uh, in his words uh, and thought and emotion, uh, so for example, there's a line from King Lear uh, where I played Gloucester in King Lear. Uh, the guy gets his eyes gouged out, and fortunately, not that much of a method actor. I didn't do what Dustin Hoffman did when he was acting with um, in the Marathon Man with Laurence Olivier. He play he had to play a torture victim, victim, and uh, he he didn't eat for two days, didn't sleep for a day and a half, and so on, and, and showed up just ragged and all that. And of course, Laurence Olivier leaned forward and said, "Oh, my dear boy." why don't you just act? <laughs> Which was quite the difference between the British and the American school of acting. But um, uh, in, in uh, King Lear, there's a line which says, uh, basically, let's have a society where, and the 10 words, distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. That distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. I mean, that's socialism, that's communism, that's redistributionism, that's the welfare state in a nutshell. Distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. What an incredibly compressed statement. And, and you see that all the, play, all, all the time in Shakespeare. So from that standpoint, I think nobody has done intergenerational conflict as well as uh, Shakespeare has. I mean, in King Lear, the idea of, of speaking bare honesty to vainglorious power uh, in the form of Cordelia speaking to, uh, to King Lear uh, Regan and Goneril, the two sisters, give all these flowery speeches. King Lear says, hey, how much do you love me, my children? And they give all these flowery, I love you, the sun, the moon, blah, blah, blah. And it's all nonsense. They don't. They're just flattering his narcissistic ego. And then Cordelia says, well, I love you as much as my station, no more, no less, blah, blah, blah. Which is, again, kind of a petty way to talk about it. And he's not lovable, but he needs to be told that he's loved. And without being a massive, hot, I don't know, can you plot spoil stuff that's 500 years old, 400 years old? I don't know. But it sets into event this, this chain of events that, that results in the destruction of the kingdom. But uh, there's this wonderful speech at the end that we, we should speak what we feel, not what we think we ought to say. And again, that's wonderful advice. In, in, uh, in Hamlet, Polonius, a shallow, vainglorious uh, court toady, has this great, uh, these great speeches 
uh, about um, uh, being being honest, being true, uh, and all of that. Um, above all, above all else, let to thine own self be true, and then it shall follow as night follows day. Thou canst not be false to anyone. And I think so. There's these great. Uh, a thought-provoking, amazing, powerful statement. As King Lear says in the middle of the storm, what is man but a bare, forked animal? You know, like a little stick figure, the little fork at the bottom that kids draw, um, a, a bare, forked animal. The speech uh, from, from Hamlet about the, the two oppositions of man, noble and glorious, and yet this thing of dust. The idea that you can live a life of the mind and be larger than your circumstances. He says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I could be bound in a nutshell and still consider myself king of infinite space, uh, but that I have bad dreams. So he gives this incredible window into the complexities of consciousness and conscience itself, intergenerational conflict, change, growth, honesty versus flattery. I mean, there's nothing in the human condition that you can't dig up in Shakespeare. That having been said, I mean, he was a state-sucking court toady. Uh, yeah, I played Macbeth, and one of the things that I found really morally repulsive in the play of Macbeth is the beginning of Macbeth is, you know, he's a, a warrior. He's a, he's a hitman. He's a paid killer for King Duncan. And he's out there slaughtering probably unarmored and badly armed peasants, you know, by the bushelful. I mean, he's basically dragging 30 heads back with him when he comes back to the king. And Shakespeare has no problem with that whatsoever. He doesn't get any bad dreams. He's perfectly happy. You know, he hoses off the peasant's blood from his hands and then goes and kisses his wife and is a wonderful guy and all that. But then he dares to kill the king and, you know, all the curses of voodoo sleeplessness hit him and, and all of that. And uh, he has that a wonderful speech, uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Uh, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale full of sound and fury, told by an idiot, signifying nothing. It's an incredible speech. Uh, and, and for that compression of, of nihilism and, and, and moral and emotional exhaustion only applies <coughs> when he dares spill the blood of the rulers. When he spills the blood uh, many times over of the peasants, uh, not a single thing is uh, is mentioned. So... Uh, so, again, he had to live in his time. He had to live in a time of extreme censorship. His very popularity would have made him an enormous target for anyone uh, who would have desired to, uh, to, to, to kill him for speaking out anything. So there is that warping effect of um, a very dangerous hitman nobility that was in power in England in the time. And I think that's really important. So I don't go to Shakespeare for politics. Uh, I do go to Shakespeare for incredibly concentrated philosophy. To, to tr I mean, I'm not the most succinct guy in the world, but it's something to strive for. Uh, and, um, and also for uh, his wide-ranging passions. Uh, but you go to, go to Shakespeare for concentrated thought, for incredibly thought-provoking monologues, and uh, for intergenerational conflicts, uh, for, for when the world is changing, what happens to the elder generation versus the younger generation, the, the, the conflicts of wise traditions versus new possibilities. Th these are things you can go to Shakespeare for. And again, we're just talking about Shakespeare. You can also get a lot of these things from Dickens. You can get a lot from Dostoevsky uh, uh, as well. Again, understanding that they lived in very circumscribed times when it came to the honest expression of thought and conscience in art. But also the other thing, I'll just stop here because I really could go on all day about this stuff. But what, what is also really important to get from the great artists is the recognition that the majority of life, even if you're the best of the best, is, is failure. You know, there are maybe 10 or 11 Shakespearean plays which are regularly produced, regularly uh, performed. I mean, obviously, you know, Hamlet, uh, uh, King Lear, A Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, you sort of go through the list. 
but he wrote like 52 plays. And, you know, who knows A Winter's Tale? You know, who knows some of these, you know, endless ones about the Wars of the Roses and so on. So Shakespeare, uh, you know, an incredible genius, still only was batting about 20% when it came to the longevity of his work. If you look at the hundreds of sonnets and people know, you know, the average person who's reasonably educated maybe knows five or seven, uh, maybe 10 or 15 if you're more educated. But that's batting 10%, you know. So batting 100 is what the very greatest geniuses can do. Uh, batting 200 uh, for your plays is, is what the greatest playwright in history can do. If you look at the Dickensian novels, he wrote dozens of them, of which there are maybe five or seven, which are considered classics and still regularly studied and sold. So, yeah, the mystery of Edwin Drood, yes, it's a real novel, but not many people know it. So he's, again, batting 100 or 200. So it gives you, you know, I get every two or three years, I get a video that goes up for half a million views. You know, that's batting a whole lot less than 100 or 200. But uh, it does give you a sense that even if I was the greatest communicator in human history, the best I could hope for is one out of 10. Uh, to be uh, a real classic. So it does help you with humility as well. Now, that, I don't know if that answers anything, but uh, go ahead. Stefan Mullen, that was an unbelievable answer. I just can't believe how eloquent and, and thrilling your answer was. Uh, so thank you. Every now that. and then I do accidentally rip one off. It's nice. No, that <laughs> nice was, when they all come that together. Was, that was just epic. Uh, it's just beautiful. Um, one quick comment, you know, I, I sometimes I worry that public school destroys Shakespeare. You know, it, it, lots of people go through life having experienced things in public school and just think that that's just crappy. You know, whatever they learned or were forced to read in public school, it was just terrible, not worth revisiting. The best way to rediscover Shakespeare, to my mind, is just to gather some friends together. Um, you know, get get a half a dozen people and, and schedule. It's not that difficult. Uh, schedule a Saturday evening where you're just going to do a reading of King Lear or Hamlet or something and start at about 4 o'clock, pour up some drinks and just start reading, assign roles. Uh, you know, it'll last, you know, a few hours. You'll have a wonderful time. You'll discover Shakespeare in a completely new way and you'll never forget it. I mean, that's a great way to spend a night. How much better is that use of that time? that evening than practically anything else you can you can ever think of that's a great thing to do another for me anyway a wonderful source for that sort of stuff is the oscar oscar wilde who wrote four absolutely brilliant plays and it's there's nothing like an evening with with friends sitting around you know uh performing oscar wilde plays you don't have to be a member of a community theater or get arts funding to do this stuff you can do it in your own home that's just one of the rights human rights we have that we should exercise i think Yes. And, you know, wonderful thing about art is, is the degree to which it is social. If you want to get to know someone, read Hamlet together and, and talk about what you think about the arguments put forward. Uh, yeah. the, the scene where Hamlet uh, is considering, again, sorry for the spoilers, you got to read this. You, you, you got it. Uh, and, and, and also you might want to watch, uh, although it, it relies very heavily on the Freudian incestuous themes, uh, Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet, I think, is one of the best. Mel Gibson's one is pretty good. But uh, I would really recommend the uh, the Laurence Olivier one. Plus, what a dashing and vividly handsome and unbelievably charismatic young performer he was. But anyway, uh, if you get together and you read Hamlet um, with someone and say, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? The argument that, that uh, Hamlet is going to kill Claudius. And he says, well, but if I kill him, he's praying at the moment. He's in a state of prayer. If I kill him now, he goes straight to heaven because he's in a moment of grace. And I end up going to hell. What an incredible argument that is about the degree to which we can take vengeance 
uh, even if you take the theological aspect out of it, the degree to which we should take vengeance not in the moment. Self-defense we all recognize in the moment is a valid right, but can we go to the guy two days later? Well, probably not, right? So, um, and also I think Hamlet is, is a wonderful explication of a Renaissance thinker in a medieval environment. And this is part of the intergenerational conflict that, that you see, that the older generation in Hamlet is, is clearly deeply embedded in the Middle Ages. And uh, uh, Hamlet is, is a Renaissance thinker. He has all of the complexity and ambiguity that began to characterize the post-scholastic tradition of the Renaissance and seeing this collision. I mean, I think it's a shame in a way that Shakespeare has to constantly put sword fights in where none are particularly necessary. But, you know, you got to have your, your transformers to get people to go to the philosophy. But learn, learn about your friends. Sit and read art with your friends. And recognize, you know, do recognize that after you read Oscar Wilde, you will be embarrassed to ever make a joke again. The man was so sublimely <laughs> witty and unbelievably delightful that, oh. um, that you, you're just embarrassed to ever make jokes again. I try and overcome it, but it's, you know, you just, you just can't. It's like trying to sing along oh. with somebody to love. It's but, just an embarrassment. Sorry, Jeff, you were going to say. The beautiful thing about Oscar Wilde is that he it, it sort of infuses within you a sense of delight for life and, you know, detachment from the world around you. It allows you to kind of, you know, be amused by things rather than infuriated by them, which is just such a help in navigating this world. Yes, and of course, to recognize the degree of tragedy that that occurred to him, uh, he was uh, obviously gay in a in a time when homosexuality, much like sort of it, it was in in the in the twentieth century, homosexuality was not a problem. Of course, in the ancient world, as as Oscar Wilde pointed out, when he was being prosecuted for homosexuality, because he liked apparently he liked a bit of rough trade, going down to the docks and finding gay gay sort of. Uh, sailors and so on. And he said, you know, well, this, this homosexuality in the ancient world, we all respect and love the Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Homosexuality in ancient Sparta was, was part of the, the warrior tradition. So we just, we live in this weird bubble of time where homosexuality has become a problem, whereas throughout a lot of human history and particularly in the entire foundation of Western culture and civilization, homosexuality was core and central to that whole tradition. Uh, so de de realizing the degree to which you can you know, when we live in a time, it's it's just the world. But to, to the great thing about historical perspective is you recognize the degree to which the times that you live in are just the times that you live in. And, uh, you know, free thought is, 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 is praised or attacked at various points throughout human history. And um, uh, to recognize the degree to which you are going to be subjected to the wildly swinging blindsided prejudices of your society. But it's just your society. It's not all of history. And of course, what he was prosecuted for, it's what I remember when, when facing the calumny of, of inevitable um, hostility, is that uh, Meletus, the guy who prosecuted Socrates, is now, remanded, re, is now remembered as one of the cosmic assholes of history, uh, you know, as, is the, as are the people who prosecuted Oscar Wilde and so on, that they, 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 they basically trod on, a, on one of the most beautiful flowers of, of, uh, of Western literature. And so, you know, the people who persecute you today are just the assholes of tomorrow. And uh, I think that perspective is, is really important. He died himself, uh, I believe in Paris, he was um, impoverished, friendless, I mean, almost as a beggar, if you can imagine such a yeah. thing. And then, and then even for the following, because, you know, he, he left, he left jail. He wrote, you know, the uh, Ballad of Reading Jail, which everybody should read, my God, what a libertarian classic. Uh, but then also De Profundis, a sort of personal letter to uh, his, his, his true, one-time true love. And then was exiled, had to leave, and, and became essentially a beggar. Became very sick and had very difficult life, and then and then died. And even for the following five and ten years, in in English culture and 
you know, the newspapers and everything, it was, he was not a fashionable figure. He was denounced as a, 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 as an evil decadent who was a grand diversion, once beloved, but my God, you know, that was a, a catastrophic interest that we English people had. And let's move on uh, away from this, this terrible, terrible influence. And so even after he died for five and even 10 years, he was, was considered, you know, somebody, his plays were not performed. And everybody seemed to agree that he was essentially a force for evil. Even five well, I mean, and, uh, of course, death. England was a, a great colonial power at the time and therefore needed the brutality of anti-sensuality. It needed the, the coldness right. of the separation of children from mothers in boarding schools and so on. So mm-hmm. as a brutal empire, it was decidedly anti-sensual. I mean, the, the, the sort of sensuality of the body, and by that I mean sexuality and, and, and food and massages and exercise and, and all of that kind of stuff. The sensuality of the body is directly opposed to things like controlling others and imperialism and so on. And he wrote very openly in the picture of Dorian Gray, I quoted it in my master's thesis about wishing to develop a new philosophy of the senses, a new philosophy of sensuality. This was counter, enormously counter, to the need for the, the male disposability and brutality and, and hostility to the body that is foundational to repression and, and war and empire and all of that. And you can see the same stuff going on in the United States as well. And he, yeah, he died. I mean, his health was broken in this terrible British prison. He died. The only thing that was marginally, you know, salvationary about his death was he did come up with one of the best death lines in history. Um, he was in a, a terrible rented room, I think, in Paris. And he'd been catching drinks and food from people by just telling witty stories. And it just basically became a busker after being one of the towering figures of Western uh, theater. And he was dying in this this horrible room uh, with with the ugliest surroundings, which of course you know as an aesthet and uh, he he would have been very sensitive to, and basically uh, he looked at this ghastly hideous wallpaper and his last words apparently were, "Well, one of us has to go," which I think is, you know, to have that level of wit even when facing the great dark is uh, to me truly truly staggering. You know, the, the, it was, I think, within 15 years after his death that, that England repealed all of its anti-sodomy legislation. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they stopped the war on, 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 on gay people. Um, and that was this, the, the turning point in, in, in English history away from, you know, this, as you say, this sort of imperial uh, uh, late Victorian um, attitudes towards a more liberal spirit, and it changed everything. It changed everything. that was it's, what a benefactor to humanity Oscar really was, because he sacrificed you know really deeply and didn't live to see the change. But the change came, you know, and and now exactly as you said, uh, his persecutors are the disgraced ones, and we look back in horror. And but it took a few years. I mean, it took. 15 or 20 years for people to say, my God, what did we as a society do to this great, great uh, artist? What did we do? What were we thinking? That was really brutal. That was really stupid. Let's fix this. I, I like the yeah, story. He took, he took one of the greatest defenses in human history, which is it's the Jewish defense to persecution, which is to be so incredibly enjoyable that you just can't hate him. I mean, you just just to be so enormously enjoyable, and this I think is a Jewish commitment to humor, and it's a pretty wise strategy, which is to be so enormously enjoyable that you just 
you just can't you you can't ever have a holocaust where you have a jerry seinfeld uh and i think it's a very intelligent strategy whether it's conscious or not i don't know but uh it is uh and then ah oh, this is the thing that's so frustrating is that wouldn't it be great and you know christians i think of all people should be really focused on this wouldn't it be great to have a society where you could have progress without martyrs i mean my god wouldn't that be just astoundingly wonderful and christians who found the religion on the martyrdom of somebody who wanted to bring progress to theology should really understand this. We should not have to keep throwing people uh, into these wood chippers in order to, to, um, to build a better future, but it still seems to be so common. At least now they're just put in prison for 20 years rather than outright killed. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I'm always cautious about this. It's like, it's not that Oscar suffered for us in some sense. Um, he loved and he lived and he embraced, you know, the best of the human spirit both in his literature and in his life, and he was persecuted unnecessarily and severely. He never wanted to undergo what happened to him. What he wanted to do was live an authentic, sincere life driven by art, truth, and above all else, love. And he just acted like that. That's the way he lived. And sadly... um, you know, he was persecuted. It's not anything he ever wanted. And it's not because he was persecuted that he ended up, you know, giving such gifts to humanity. It's just the problem is that there's a, a kind of a time disconnect between certain truths that happen in our time and the delay that comes to, for politics and culture and the social order to embrace those truths. And that's very frustrating. It's very frustrating, I think, for all of us right now because we see so much, so many truths of, of, of human freedom and, and the love and humanitarianism that should be animating our world. And we, yet we look around and we see despotism and brutality and victims of the system everywhere. And we get impatient. We get impatient, I think. Yeah. And Oscar, it, but. You know, pro- progress mm-hmm. is so often wrapped up in remorse. You know, what we feel really bad about what happens, so we will allow a few shreds of light to, to, to break into the dark cave. We feel bad about what we did to Socrates, so he's okay now. We feel bad about what we did to Oscar Wilde or Jesus, so, okay, they're positive forces now. We, you know, and it will happen. We'll feel bad about what we did to Bradley Manning or Edward Snowden or, or all of the horrible uh, things that have happened to the soldiers who, who went over in the wars of imperialism. But we feel bad about all of this stuff. And so, but my God, can we, can we not have progress Without uh, the, the, the bloodstains of regret on our conscience, it just seems to be a hard thing. You know, we can't, we can't seem as a species to listen to reason and evidence. We must always be bouncing back from regret and guilt and shame uh, to allow some shreds of progress forward. Anyway, that's my bitter statement, but it does seem a little frustrating. It is frustrating. Yeah, it's very frustrating. And well, wish- thank you very much for your, for your answer. That was uh, really, uh, really helped me, I think, uh, understand why. It's important to uh, look back at these great, great writers and authors, and of course also to remember that um, I can do all this without paying a royalty. Uh, this is all without intellectual <laughs> property. All this variation. So true. And, and, and Shakespeare himself was a com- was a commercial uh, writer, right? I mean that. that, that you know, my friend Paul Cantor, at the University of Virginia, loves the movie Shakespeare in Love because it highlights the sheer sort of commercialism of, 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 of William Shakespeare. You know, oh, he, he was a grasping and greedy bourgeoisie who tried to marry up and then retired. Uh, no, he was definitely a very, a very astute 
uh, capitalist. And uh, this is why, yeah. of course, he throws in the clowns and the sword fights because he knows he's got to get the groundlings to come into the play. Well, no, I think we right. have another caller. Uh, Mike, if you'd like to bring them front and center. Sure. John, you're up next. Go ahead. Hey, Stefan. It's been a while. How are you? I'm fantastic, man. A lot has changed since you and I have last talked. A lot for the better. No, what I, what I wanted to say before I get to my question was you and uh, Jeffrey's speech on schooling and on education uh, really resonated very deeply with me because uh, I am self-taught in the field. I, I did contemplate getting my master's, but uh, my sister Christy uh, once said, you know, that brilliance does not require paper. And that's something I, I held very, you know, dear to myself. So I, I've been self-teaching. And uh, really, Stefan, to you personally, I never got a chance to formally thank you because our encounter at Porkfest uh, and seeing the brand you created you know, with philosophy and, and seeing what you could do with the field uh, you know, in an age like 2013 when so many people kind of put their nose down at it, at least in my experience, uh, really inspired me to go home and start, as you know, my firm, Intellectus Brand, which I'm quite proud of. Um, so it's just an honor to be here with you and to just formally thank you at last. So I really appreciate it. And it meant a great well, thank deal you. to me. Listen, uh, be sure to put out, uh, what's the website that people can visit you at? Uh, well, my website, right now I'm doing writings. Pretty soon I'll be doing my own show on Blip, but for right now my writings would be www.issuuu.com forward slash forum underscore intellectus. Yeah, that's a mouthful there. But just Have, you, have you ever given a thought to marketing? If you have to spell out the website name, <laughs> now I say this with Free Domain Radio, which I have to spell out, but, you know, uh, just something you might want to. You might want to create a I, tiny URL to, for that. It's just, just my thought. I, I've been looking to upgrade to business cards, but, but we're not that savvy yet. I'm, I'm hoping we get right, there in due time. Okay, so what's your sure, question? Sure. Uh, yes, my question. I wanted to um, discuss with you an essay I wrote a few months back. I, I truly believe it's one of my best. You know that you and I, well, I don't think we've ever discussed economics, but I am a capitalist. I do believe in the free market. But a young man, I don't know if you ever heard of this case. I thought it was a very intriguing case. Aaron Schwartz. Um, Oh, yeah. A, yes, yes, thank yeah, in you. In fact, I'm so Jeff, glad you Jeff heard and I did a show did on Eric Schwartz a couple of months ago. Yeah, we did a, like a 30 minute you know, tribute to him, didn't we, Stefan? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, hearing his case and how he, you know, downloaded all these scholastic uh, journals, you know, hacked into JSTOR, downloaded all the journals, and was going to, you know, distribute them among third world nations, you know, particularly Africa and, and the like. And seeing that Carmen Ortiz and somebody else whose name I, I can't recollect right now really brought the hammer down hard on him, which disgusted me. Because the sentence he got, I think, was way too gross for his offense, especially when you take into account that he did return the intellectual property to JSTOR and they didn't even want to press charges. I, I think MIT may have wanted to do something, but the legal action they would have wanted to take was uh, punitive in comparison to what Carmen Ortiz grabbed him by the throat with. But um, here. Hearing Aaron's story and seeing what he was all about really inspired me to believe, well, I am a free market capitalist economically, but information speaking and knowledge speaking, you could almost say that I'm kind of a socialist. I, I do believe in what Aaron tried to do. And I did some of my own research for this essay, and particularly in Africa, we find, uh, at least according to the research I've done, that one in three children living in Africa will drop out of school. 98% of people who are illiterate and lack writing skills are residents of developing countries. And lastly, it is estimated that 30 to 50% of children in developing countries who leave school after four to six years are neither literate nor are they numerate. 
so you can really see the gap in terms of the human capital uh, you know, in these developing nations. And I go on and on about it. Pretty much, Stefan, my question to you is, what do you think about Aaron Schwartz's goal and pretty much what I have pretty much gift wrapped and put a bow tie on it of, you know, uh, information socialism to really increase human capital in these developing countries, which in turn may help their markets economically. Well, look, speaking. I mean, the, the first thing to recognize is that the patent system is socialist. Anything which relies on the initiation of the use of force for the transfer of income is fundamentally socialist in its in its fact. So when you say that you're sort of anti-IP but pro-socialist, I would argue that you're in fact pro-free markets when you're anti-IP. IP is a socialist program designed to reward the media in return for the media's allegiance to the state. It gives them a monopoly on their products and uh, uh, therefore they're going to not question or oppose or attack the state in the same way that getting government unions, government protected unions into the media makes sure that uh, unions are basically not, usually not criticized. But look, the, the, the sentencing of, of Schwartz, he was facing decades in jail. Uh, the sentencing of Bradley Manning, um, the, the hysterical calls for the death penalty, basically the assassination of Julian Assange. Let me, this is an article written that you, I just looked up while you were mentioning this. This is an article written by Michael Moore. And uh, he's got some great stuff to say about this stuff. So this is Bradley Manning. Now, I can't remember. I think he got a couple of decades in jail. So he wrote, when his sentencing is announced tomorrow, he, he wrote this before the sentencing, we'll all get a good idea of how seriously the U.S. military takes different crimes. So, for instance, Colonel Thomas M. Pappas, the senior military intelligence officer at Abu Ghraib, and the senior officer present the night of the murder of Iraqi prisoner Manadel Ajamadi, received no jail time. No jail time. But he was reprimanded and fined, ooh, $8,000. Uh, Pappas was heard to say about Al-Jamadi, I'm not going down for this alone. Sergeant Sabrina Harmon, the woman famously seen giving a thumbs up next to Al-Jamadi's body and another photo smiling and in another photo, photo, uh, photo smiling next to naked hooded Iraqis stacked on each other. In Abu Ghraib was sentenced to six months in prison for maltreating detainees. Uh, specialist Armin Cruz was sentenced to eight months for abusing Iraqis at Abu Ghraib and covering up the abuse. Uh, Specialist Stephen Rybordi was sentenced to eight months for being an accessory to the murder of four Iraqi prisoners who were bound, blindfolded, shot, and dumped in a canal in Baghdad in 2007. Four, four murders. He gets eight months. Uh, Specialist, uh, sorry, yeah. Specialist Belmore Ramos was sentenced to seven months for conspiracy to commit murder in the same case. Sergeant Michael Leahy Jr. was sentenced to life in prison for committing the four Baghdad murders. The military then granted him, him clemency and reduced his sentence to 20 years with parole possible after seven years. So after seven years, this man can be released from prison for murdering four helpless detainees. Marine Sergeant Frank D. Woodrich received no jail time for negligent dereliction in the massacre of 24 unarmed men, women and children in 2005 in the Iraqi town of Haditha. Seven other members of his battalion were charged, but none were punished in any way. Marine Lance Corporal Jer- Jerry Shumati and Lance Corporal Tyler Jackson were both sentenced to 21 months for the aggravated assault of Hashim Ibrahim Awad, 52, a father of 11 and grandfather of four, in Helmandania in 2006. Awad died after being shot during the assault. Their sentences were later reduced. Two more. Marine Lance Corporal Robert Pennington was sentenced to eight years for the same incident, but only served a few months before being granted clemency and released from prison. Marine Sergeant G. Hachias III was sentenced to 15 years for the murder for murder in the Awadi case, in the Awad case, but his conviction was soon overturned and he was released. No soldiers received any punishment for the killing of five Iraqi children, four women and two men in one 
Ishaki home in 2006. According to the among the U.S. diplomatic cables leaked by Bradley Manning was email from a U.N. official stating that U.S. soldiers had executed all of them. When WikiLeaks published the cable, the uproar in Iraq was so big that the Nuri al-Malaki government couldn't grant any remaining U.S. troops immunity from prosecution in Iraqi courts, thus forcing the Obama administration to abandon its plans to keep several thousand U.S. soldiers permanently. All the U.S. troops were removed at the end of 2011. So uh, this is just an example of the idea that there is no such thing as the rule of law. There is the random, fiery, Balrog-style whips of those in power. And those in power relied upon a torture or believed that they needed torture uh, in order to get information. Torture is incredibly counterproductive, even if you take aside the unbelievable moral horror of torture. As far as a way of gaining information, it is completely and ridiculously counterproductive. Not even unproductive, it's counterproductive. Because most times you're questioning people, they don't know. They don't know the answer because any intelligent person when faced with torture is just going to fess up. So they don't know the answer. But what happens is they make up an answer in order to avoid torture. And then the the government spends all of its resources chasing uh, these ghosts, these imaginary things. It's all a bunch of Kaiser Sose nonsense. And so there's no possible productivity in the realm of torture. But the government doesn't have smart, intelligent, aware market-driven enough people to actually go and pursue uh, criminals in productive ways. So it just tortures because they're a bunch of sadists and it likes torture. So people who are caught for torture get uh, slaps on the wrist, get fines, get sentenced to lengthy sentences, which are then commuted. People who murder, because it's the foundation of state power is violence. So it's never going to prosecute violence. However, the exposure of state crimes goes against state power, right? The, the capacity to torture, murder, extraordinary rendition, all of that, that is foundational to state power. So there'll be a slap on the wrist for the sake of public appearance. But anybody who actually shows the crimes of the state, releases and reveals the crimes of the state, well, they must be punished in a truly hysterical, um, you know, witch hunt, Salem, Massachusetts style. And uh, this just tells you that there's nothing objective that's going on in the realm of the state when it comes to punishment. Uh, Aaron Schwartz was punished for a wide variety of reasons, but mostly the government is terrified of exposure, uh, of exposure. Uh, The government can record you Uh, going everywhere in the world. The government can get your GPS signals. The government uh, has uh, CCTV cameras everywhere. But you try pointing a camera at a cop, at a government official, you try recording, and you are usually in a whole heap of trouble. Uh, And one of the great positives, of course, is that there there is enough recording equipment out there that people like Antonio Beeler and others can actually uh, get video evidence exonerating them of the hysterical crimes that they're accused of. So, um, yeah, I mean, this all started for me, and I'll just touch on this very briefly. I remember uh, during the, uh, the Bill Clinton scandals of the early 90s where he was found to just be a truly repulsive and, and deviant and uh, perverse sexual predator. Uh, I remember thinking, oh, man, you know, boy, society, this guy's going to be impeached and, and disbarred, and he's gonna, his career is going to be over by the end of the week. Because we just came out of the Clarence Thomas thing where – uh, Anita Hill was complaining of his sexual harassment because he may or may not have made a joke about pubic hands on a coke, pubic hairs on a coke can, uh, none of which was ever proven to my knowledge. I mean, this just went on for years and years and years, and his nomination was going to be barred, and of course it was just left-wing attacks upon conservatives. But having just come out, I was still mistakenly thinking that there were some principles in society because, you know, it was 20 years ago. You know, cut me a break. I, you know, I was, I was still a baby in arms when it came to philosophy. And so I remember when all of this stuff came out about, about Clinton inserting... Uh, cigars uh, into the poor vagina of his uh, uh, personal geisha uh, uh, and and while on the phone doing official business, getting blowjobs and stuff. I just remember thinking, oh my God, given what happened to Clarence Thomas, 
he is going to be out of office in days. I just remember thinking what an incredible moment in history this is and, and seeing what happened with uh, uh, a little bit of wiretapping and how Nixon was hounded out of office for something that LBJ and JFK and everyone had done before him. I just remember thinking, my God, I mean, the feminists, and they're just going to go completely nuts because this is about a billion times worse than what happened with Clarence Thomas. And then what happened? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. The man still speaks. And he's paid $100,000 to speak at events. He's a respected elder statesman. My God, we live in a psychotic world of sociopathic manipulation of rules for the sake of creating punishment and guilt among the livestock. It has nothing to do with any principle. So the prosecution of Aaron Schwartz, yeah, he's a guy who can shine a light in dark corners and therefore he must be punished in order to avoid other people from revealing the crimes of the state. Now, the state is criminality, but of course, most people stay in the matrix and assume that the government obeys its own laws. The more that people can dig into the data and show that it doesn't, uh, you'll just see that um, if, if, uh, uh, if the government fears exposure, you know, cockroaches don't like sunlight. And if the government fears exposure, they will lash out hysterically and punish. It has nothing to do with any rules. All it has to do is uh, self-protection. And, uh, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, the, 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 the mafia head who killed the accountant who was about to cooperate with the feds is doing it on a moral basis uh, uh, for justice and law and so on. No, it's just that he could reveal the secrets of the mafia to the, to the government and therefore they're going to kill him. And the same thing is, is obviously uh, occurring with all of the people who are exposing government crimes. Okay, end, end of rant. Sorry, uh, Jeff, if you'd like to... Uh, you know, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I feel like your commentary, to, to me, really uh, illuminates a very important point, and that's that I feel like our media in this day and age, it's, it's like living in uh, the modern allegory of, of Plato's cave. You know, we're all, we're all making shadow puppets, and only very few of us come out and we see the sun. We have to go back down and, you know, tell everybody else about it. But, you know, my thing is your, your whole commentary and your sentiments on torture and coer, uh, coercion and a state that, you know, props itself up with the use of force, that to me just really raises even more so the critical importance of what Aaron Swartz is doing and what, you know, I wrote in this essay. Again, you know, information uh, socialism, as, as I called it. Uh, but but my question is, and this and this will be my last question on the matter. What is the best route to take? Because I can understand people who are opposed to my course of action. Um, because you know you're talking things like essays and scholastic journals are you know intellectual property. I would go on some formal databases, some papers to download cost fifty dollars. But I, I feel like the information to people in the third world is so invaluable. I don't want to make any money off of my essays. You know, part of my goal in being a philosopher for me personally was making the field and making the discourses that I started accessible to everybody, uh, no matter the level of education, no matter the level of anything. Um, so if, if we want to make information this this powerful revolutionary tool, and again, you made a great video that I watched just the other day, the 55-minute commentary on Syria, which I recommend that everybody go watch on Steph's YouTube channel at StephBod. Just a quick plug for you there. I really enjoyed that video. Uh, you know, that's the stuff that I think people need to be listening to because that's stuff that empowers, that's stuff that engages, that's stuff that enlightens. Um, so how do we do it, Steph? I mean, it, is it, I mean, how do we please our philosophy of the market so that people can still get their money's worth, so to speak, on their intellectual property, but we still achieve the aim of enlightening those around us? I mean, is it a foolhardy goal or is it something that, you know, like I'm trying to do now that we should just continue to pursue and see if we yield any results? Well, I can't possibly speak better on IP than Jeff, so um, Jeff, would you like to... Yeah, let me, I'm, I'm glad this subject came up. I had a friend 
write me a couple of days ago and say that he had written a book and he wanted to distribute it in a libertarian way. I wasn't sure what that way was. He said, my, my sense is that I need to give it away for free and then ask for donations. And I said, well, if that, if that works for you, that's, that's great. But just remember that the way to do things in a libertarian way is to not use the state. Okay, that, maybe that sounds very obvious, but people forget this. So there's nothing wrong with taking a non-scarce good like the information in a book and charging for the scarce delivery of that book, if that works out to be a good thing. You know, when you, when you buy an MP3 from, from iTunes, you're not really buying a song. What you're doing is buying an increment of service use, which is, uh, you could argue, is a scarce good. It's the same thing with buying a, a, a copy of a, a book uh, off Amazon, the Kindle. You're not, you're not buying really a book. What you're doing is buying an increment of service delivery in which this non-scarce good called a book is delivered to you. Maybe that's a, a good way to do it, and it doesn't necessarily require the state at all. At Let's Say Fair Books, we started a subscription model for, for books that, um, that are entirely published in the comments. So one of the conditions I made when I went to work for Let's Say Fair Books, I said to, the, to these um, people who run Agora Financial, I said, you know, I, I just can't in good conscience use, use the state in any aspect of our, of our business. I don't want to use copyright. They're a little bit you know, alarmed by this and confused by the implications of it. I said, you know, I don't think it's going to make any difference to our business model, but it is going to make a difference in terms of the moral status of the products we produce. So everything we produce is in the commons, but what we're doing, attempting to do is charge for the delivery of this product, of this service in which we give, you know, books away every every two weeks. And, uh, you know, by now we're up to, I think it's something like 100 books that you can get for like 10, 10 bucks. These are all mostly all new books with new introductions and things. So I'm not using the state at all, uh, but just because you're not using the copyright institution doesn't mean that you can't charge for for the service. I, I hope that that's clear. This is a little bit of a tricky distinction for people. People get a little bit confused about this. It might be the right thing to give away the product. I think that's that's a nice thing, but just because you're charging for something doesn't mean that it has to be copyrighted. Those are really uh, different kinds of issues. Aaron Schwartz was particularly outraged that the they, that JSTOR was using the state to to restrain access to prevent access to these scientific literature that had been mostly written at taxpayer expense, you know, and was being withheld from the masses of people and being only allocated to you know specialists in a, in a very strict area, a tiny elite. And their access to JSTOR is being provided, again, by, by tax dollars. It's just insane. So it was a very unjust system, and he smashed it. It was just, it was just a beautiful thing that he did. And, you know, we talked about Oscar Wilde earlier and, and his effect on history. It's the same thing with Aaron Schwartz, you know. Um, so he was driven to despair and took his own life. But, you know, within a few weeks after his death, JSTOR made uh, open access a general policy. Uh, more and more you see that JSTOR is opening it up further and further and further. So this moral example is having an effect on the future. He was dedicated to open source, and let's never forget what Aaron Schwartz was working on before he, before his death. He was working on a new model of politics, an open source program that allowed all of us to have uh, direct access to um, the, the, the people who are in, uh, purport to be in charge of our lives and give us a greater voice. It was kind of a revolutionary uh, project, political project he was working on 
And I believe that's ultimately why they went after him. And, you know, I, I completely agree, Jeffrey. And to me, Aaron Swartz was just so inspiring. And when I heard his story, I actually got chills down my spine thinking about how similar he and I were in terms of our ambitions and our, you know, ideologies concerning life. My thing ultimately with information socialism, and I'm going to shut my trap here, uh, is that, you know, I'm, I'm vehemently against uh, Stefan uh, egalitarianism, you know, purported by John Rawls. I talked about him on my second appearance on your show. We talked about his veil of ignorance and his social contract. What I, what I think is distinct about information socialism, and, and here's the example I use, if we're talking about socialism in the economic sense, and you have three people sitting around a table, and you have to distribute $300, and that's your $300 to start with, you're going to lose $200 because you have to give 100 to each guy. But if you're teaching those three people what 2 plus 2 equals, and they learn that it's 4, you don't forget that it's 4. So to me, you don't lose anything really when you distribute this information. If anything, you know, speaking economically, you're bringing more people into the pool to know how to apply that knowledge to ultimately enrich the market. And you know that maybe that's a naive point of view, but that's really how I examined it when I was writing this essay. And I, I just really hope it's something that can catch on. And you know, like you making your videos and me writing my essays, people will start. You know, really not being afraid to making these kinds of contributions and, and not be so wary of the consequences because I, I think in the long run it makes for a healthier society and it's, it certainly makes for healthier markets. So that's just well, what I, I wanted to say uh, about that. I would certainly argue that where knowledge has a moral dimension, then it is philosophies, uh, philosophers are the doctors of the species, right? I mean, the doctors of the mind. And so if I had... A, um, a painless cure for AIDS that I could produce for free and people could consume for free and I withheld that from people, I think there would be a moral dimension to that. Doesn't mean I'm evil, doesn't mean that nobody gets to initiate the use of force against me. I'm not evil if I don't, if I'm a champion lifeguard and there's some kid drowning 10 feet off the shore and I don't go in to help him, I'm not evil. But I'm kind of a real jerk. Like, I mean, there's an aesthetic aspect to ethics that I think is really important. You can be incredibly wrong without being evil. And from my standpoint, if I was telling, I don't know, um, fun stories about camping, I mean, there's not a moral dimension really to that. If I was like Bill Bryson and just wrote these cute, cute stories about hiking trails and stuff like that, fine writer and enjoyable. There's no moral dimension to it. Uh, although he did actually have a great <laughs> point about people in Arkansas who rejected evolution, that they were not so much in danger of being descended from apes as overtaken by them, which I thought was he's got some wonderfully witty lines. But um, uh, but so not like art, which has no particular moral dimension. Um, oh, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Uh, but art, which has or, or or communication, literature, speeches that have a moral dimension, are the medicines of mankind. For me to say, and this is, you know, I'm not saying this is a universal moral thing that I'll defend to the death, but for, if I have the capacity to bring some light of reason and virtue to the species, obviously it's good for me that it gets distributed as widely as humanly possible for people to think rationally, for people to, um, to think critically, to think ahead and so on, to avoid mistakes. And, and if they listen to me about things like circumcision and, and, and not hitting your children, not yelling at your children, not violating the NAP with regards to parenting, Great. If I had, if, if if even though it costs me nothing fundamentally to create and produce that, and it costs nothing to distribute it, if I were to charge for that, to me that would be like charging a fairly unsupportable amount for people who could be cured for free. 
And to me, there's a moral dimension to that. And I thought about this a long time. It was a very hard thing for me to think about. Like when I decided, you know, six years ago to release my books for free, that was a hard decision. But I felt that if the books are helpful in, in bringing people to, to reason, to thinking, to virtue, to, to, to a better world, to withhold them and to charge for them when I could survive without doing that, there would be a moral dimension to that. I mean, the, the guy who invented the polio vaccine, he never patented it. Uh, he never made a penny off of it. Uh, Salk, I think his name was. And he just released it. And, and it was incredibly cheap because of that. He didn't sell it to a pharmaceutical company. The guy could have been a multi-multi-millionaire. Uh, if he'd held on to this. But think of the amount of good. I mean, polio used to be an unbelievably terrifying disease for people. I mean, uh, it, it was like the AIDS that didn't kill you. I mean, it would, you could stick in iron lungs. I mean, you'd, you'd paralyzed and public pools were a huge transmitter of these. Kids were terrified to go swimming. Their parents kept them in all the time. When there was a polio outbreak, everyone stayed inside and, and they were terrified. I mean, it was an unbelievably terrifying disease. And to say, well, you know, you got to give me 50 bucks for the, for the vaccine, I mean, yeah, I get it. I know I'm not a capitalist and all this, but, but to me, if, if you can survive reasonably well uh, and give it away for free, I mean, I think you kind of should do that. Again, I'm not going to initiate force against you if you don't, but I would make a strong case for uh, if, if your work has moral dimensions to it, uh, just try and get it in as many people's hands as humanly possible. Even if you never make a penny, you'll, you'll grow up and live and die in a better world than, than you found it. If you have kids, they'll grow up in a better world. There's a lot of selfish reasons for doing it. But I think when you have something that can literally save people's lives, uh, I think that charging for it when you can survive without charging for it has a moral dimension to it. And uh, so it's one of the things. I, I mean, I take the work that I do enormously seriously. I take the work that other libertarians like Jeff do very seriously. We are saving lives. We are uh, protecting people from war. We are protecting people from the enslavement of debt. We are uh, very much... Uh, vanguards. We are the first line of defense against tyranny, and very often thinkers are the last line of defense against tyranny, because if the thinkers fall, there's nobody left to protect people from the state. I take it very seriously, and to me, the idea that profit should be a primary motive in the distribution of security, safety, peace, protection, and virtue, uh, to me, is, I think, taking the market too far, if that makes any sense. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. It's a very interesting moral commentary, and I find it persuasive. There's an, there's an additional point that in the digital age, th there's no keeping information private anymore. Information, is, as, the, as the left often says, wants to be free. And I, there is that element. These are not, no, information is a non-scarce good. Uh, this, the driving force of history is ever more revelation, ever more openness, uh, ever more reverse engineering of what we know so that the predictive power of, can be put into everybody's hands whether it's through 3D printing or uh, YouTubing and creation, artistic creation, every, in every area, we're moving to a world of radically, uh, radical availability of information and uh, openness. And there's nothing that's going to stop that. And it's, to me, it's one of the most inspiring examples of how human action and the impulse and the push towards liberty ultimately will overtake the state's efforts to restrict and restrain and contain and censor. Uh, it's an unviable project. The state itself is an unviable project, but this particular aspect of the state is particularly uh, unviable and unsustainable over the long term. Well, 
Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. I know you have another commitment, so we are going to uh, let you go. Thank you for a, a wonderful morning's conversation. It's uh, uh, really invigorating and energizing, and uh, it's always, you know, drinking deep from the well of Jeffrey Tucker will always have you, uh, always put a spring in your step. So thank you. Well, listen, I've learned so much from you, from your guests, from the venue. Uh, it's been very inspiring for me. So let me just express my uh, profound thank you to you. And it's been an honor to be here. And I hope we can catch up again very soon. All right. Thanks. And it's LFB.org to go and check out Jeff's LFB.org forward slash Stefan if you want to sign up for the book club, which I'd highly recommend. Thanks again. Have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. I love you guys. Uh, the most incredible listener conversations, the most incredible conversations that I know of uh, that are recorded and broadcast at least. Uh, so thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Mike. Uh, if you'd like to help out, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. And uh, please do share the Syria video if we can uh, uh, make a measurable change, even if it's small in public opinion. We literally could do a good day's work in saving uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. So thanks, everyone. Have a great week. I will see you uh, Wednesday night for the 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time show. And for the next Sunday show, we are seven days minus two hours. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye.